Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada uh, live stream broadcast for Friday, October 20th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor of the Electronic Intifada, with my co-host Asa Wynn-Stanley and our Executive Director, Ali Abunima. Uh, we have a very, very full show once again today, um, so I hope you all stay tuned. Um, and uh, with that, Ali, your opening remarks on what we've seen the last 48 hours. Thanks, Nora. Just over 24 hours ago, our friend Rifat al-Ar'ir informed us that the building that he lives in in Gaza City was attacked. Two missiles hit the fourth floor, killing several of his neighbors, a mother and her two daughters who were preparing food. Rifat and his family and the dozens of people they were sheltering in their apartment on the third floor were fortunately uh, spared. Rifat described the experience as horrifying as it can only be. He said that part of the psychological terror that Israel inflicts is that you do not know if they will hit the building again to finish it off. So now Rifat and his family are displaced they're seeking a shelter in the school. They have nowhere to go uh, that is safe, like more than a million other people who've already been uh, displaced in Gaza. Rifat texted me this morning. We are fine, he said. My reaction was that fine must be a relative term. I also heard from our friend uh, Ahmed Aburtema the writer who often contributes to the Electronic Intifada and one of the founders of the Great March of Return. He texted, now very difficult, massacres everywhere. Near us, they bombarded a family of 50 persons. They were killed. These experiences, unfortunately, are now the norm in Gaza. There is no one we've been in contact with in Gaza who hasn't had a similar experience or lost friend, friends and family, often numbering in the dozens. Ahmed added, Israel found that this is the proper moment to implement a strategic plan of displacement. I wish I could say I believe Ahmed is wrong. Uh, but on Thursday, seven United Nations special rapporteurs, these are independent experts appointed by the United Nations Human Rights Council, made the following declaration. The complete siege of Gaza, coupled with unfeasible evacuation orders and forcible population transfers, is a violation of international humanitarian and criminal law. It is also unspeakably cruel. The experts recalled that the willful and systematic destruction of civilian homes and infrastructure known as domicide and cutting off drinking water, medicine and essential food is clearly prohibited under international criminal law. We are sounding the alarm. There is an ongoing campaign by Israel resulting in crimes against humanity in Gaza considering statements made by Israeli political leaders and their allies, accompanied by military action in Gaza and escalation of arrests and killing in the West Bank, there is also a risk 
of genocide against the Palestine people, the experts uh, said. There are no justifications or exceptions for such crimes. We are appalled by the international, uh, by the inaction of the international community in the face of belligerent warmongering, they added. I can only agree, anyone who is not appalled has lost their humanity. Last week, three prominent human rights groups, uh, Palestinian human rights groups, called for urgent international intervention, quote, to protect the Palestinian people against genocide. And as the occupying power, Human Rights Watch observes that Israel has a duty under the Fourth Geneva Convention to the fullest extent of the means available of ensuring the food and medical supplies of the population. Starvation as a method of warfare is prohibited and is a war crime, the group said. But so far, Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, the world's supposed court of last resort, ignored calls to make a preventive statement that could deter further war crimes and crimes against humanity, including genocide. Now we're watching a genocide unfold in real time and what's the so-called international community doing? Today, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was at the Rafah border crossing between Egypt and Gaza and Gaza to try to work out all the intricate details of getting trucks of food in. Of course, without food, water and medicine, people will take anything that comes into Gaza. But 20 trucks isn't even a drop in the ocean. That's one truck for every 100,000 people. But a thousand trucks wouldn't make a dent in the catastrophic situation. That is because human, humanitarian aid is beside the point. People in Gaza have no food, water, fuel, or medicine because Israel turned them off in order to commit mass murder through dehydration, hunger, and disease. It is shocking that in his statement at Rafah, Guterres did not call clearly and unambiguously for an immediate ceasefire and did not state clearly that Israel is committing crimes against humanity by deliberately starving the population in Gaza. In such a situation, photo ops with a few aid trucks is complicity. Israel is trying to distract us with disputes about how many trucks when what is needed is to put every kind of pressure on Israel to stop the murder. When someone is being murdered, you don't offer them a glass of water. You do all you can to stop the murder before anything else. Secretary General Guterres and every other official should be screaming only one message from the rooftops. Stop the bombing. Stop the genocide. Instead, the UN is abdicating its responsibility and providing a blue cover to the US-Israeli-Egyptian aid charade at the Rafah crossing. The humanitarian aid distraction was set up by President Joe Biden as a public relations exercise to absolve the United States of complicity with genocide. On Wednesday, following his cheerleading trip to Israel, Biden announced $100 million in aid for Palestinians. I doubt that will ever materialize, and even if it does, it will do nothing now. Meanwhile, Biden is requesting another $14.3 billion from Congress for Israel to make sure it never runs out of bombs. 
All this fake activity and fake concern is window dressing to allow Israel to pose as if they actually care about the needs of Palestinians while Israel has time to bomb, exterminate, and expel them. Israel has a clear responsibility under the Fourth Geneva Convention, and the so-called international community must not help Israel to evade it by engaging in this charade at the Egyptian border. Since those who are charged with the duty are choosing instead to be complicit in genocide, the responsibility is on us, individually and collectively, to raise the alarm in every place we can. Stop the bombing, stop the genocide. That is what people in Gaza are asking us to do. Thank you, Nora. Thank you, Ali. Um, and uh, we are now joined by Ahmed Abufoul. He's the legal research and advocacy officer at the Palestinian rights group Al-Haq. Ahmed, uh, you're originally from Hamama. You grew up as a refugee in Gaza. We know that your cousin and his wife and your cousin's family uh, were killed two days ago in an Israeli airstrike. We cannot imagine the unspeakable grief that you are experiencing. Um, can you talk a little bit about your family right now uh, and 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 your reaction to the abetting of the genocide uh, of your family and, and community in Gaza? Um, yes, well, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, my family's situation is like um, millions of Palestinians in Gaza at, at this very moment. Uh, a lot of people are dis displaced. Uh, they have no access to proper food, uh, sanitation, water. It's 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 a catastrophe, uh, as the Palestinians would call it. Another Nakba, as a matter of fact, it's been an ongoing Nakba uh, uh, for very long. Um, I'm, I'm very hesitant to, to, to make this personal and to speak about uh, our own uh, grief because it's only uh, a drop in the ocean of what the Palestinian people have been experiencing for over 75 years. And, and um, if you allow me, I would like to put things into context and uh, make sure to clarify that this didn't start in, in, in 7th uh, of October. The oppressing of the Palestinian people has been going for over 75 years. Um, when we talk about uh, Gaza in particular, we're talking about 2.3 million Palestinians that have been uh, locked in what uh, the UN even describes as an open-air prison for over 16 years. Uh, um, Israel uh, uh, evidently has been even calculating the amount of calorie intake for the population in Gaza and only allows food uh, uh, to what would make them survive in a policy they call uh, the head right above the water where you can't swim to survive and at the same time you don't die and bring so much attention. Uh, in the current situation, it seems that the, the uh, Israeli leaders um, saw an opportunity here to materialize uh, uh, the long-announced Zionist dream to get rid of the Gaza population. It's uh, They're being very open about the plan to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians and push them to uh, the Gaza Strip. We've been hearing from uh, right-wing government members for years 
um, that they uh, they want to uh, to implement this plan. We've been hearing even calls for Palestinians in the West Bank, part of them to be pushed to Egypt, uh, uh, part of Palestinians and um, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel in, in 1948, uh, as we call it, to push part of, of the population of the Galilee to Lebanon. Uh, and the whole idea behind that is is uh, to achieve the uh, long uh, known and announced Zionist uh, a dream of having of colonizing the land completely, um, having maximum land with less Palestinians. Um, the, the the Zionist mentality is so fixate, fixated on the uh, so-called demographic threat, as they consider all Palestinians. And Gaza represents a threat to them. The very existence of the Palestinians in Gaza, 2.3 million in, in, in 365 square meters, one of the most densely populated is on the face of the earth, they consider it a demographic uh, burden. Uh, so the, the war that we're witnessing now is not a war on, on Hamas or any other uh, uh, Palestinian faction. This is, in fact, a war on the very existence of the Palestinian people. It's it's important for you, your viewers also to know that there have been successive military assaults on Gaza. I personally lived through, rather, rather survived three of them uh, and had to suffer the fear for my family for another three operations, including this one, and, and endure the loss of family members and, 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 and friends. So... Obviously, there is no military solution to this uh, uh, this situation, admittedly by uh, by Israeli um, officials, um, especially those who were in the government before. So the Israelis know very well that there is no military solution. So this understanding these aspects of the topic, we're left with a situation where clearly uh, Israel just trying to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians. This is the sole purpose of this uh, uh, war. And this is an attack on, on Palestinians everywhere, not only in Gaza. Let, let us not forget there, that there are over 80 uh, Palestinians killed since uh, 7th of October in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. There have been uh, uh, a brutal uh, arrest campaign for any Palestinian citizens of Israel who publish anything on social media, including artists and, uh, um, and influential figures in the Palestinian society and community in Israel. So... This shows you that this is an attack on, on the Palestinian uh, existence. And what is what is quite shameful, to be honest, is the, the complete uh, silence of the international community. Um, we hear a lot of, quote-unquote, diplomacy work, but none of that calls for a ceasefire. Like, how shameful is that, that we have all of these superpowers who claim the higher... Uh, moral grounds and cannot even call for a ceasefire or call for respect for international law or call for accountability. And we're not really asking much. I think uh, the past year since the um, Russian invasion in Ukraine, um, the West has shown us quite clearly that we can mobilize international law to support people for their uh, right to self-determination and right of, to, to be free from any alien domination or occupation. But when it comes to Palestine, uh, this enthusiasm seems to not exist. And this is not only uh, dangerous uh, as it, it is dehumanizing the Palestinians, 
uh, it's also dangerous because it, it undermines the very system that the West claims uh, to, to agree with or to want to implement. So we're rendered with a situation where Palestinians, or I would even say people in the global South, cannot really take the West seriously when they talk about international law and human rights, because obviously they just apply this selectively when it's politically convenient. Uh, um, and and, and uh, when an occupation is by of their friends, somehow it's good. But when it's one of their enemies, it's it's bad. Self-determination for Ukrainians is good. But for Palestinians, somehow we don't talk about it. Uh, international law and accountability and international justice is very important. And it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it appears in every conversation about Ukraine, but it's completely absent. Uh, uh, on Palestine. Such shameful, disgraceful hypocrisy uh, of the West, I think, harms the, uh, the system that should govern uh, us all. Uh, and the last words may be just to conclude with this and make sure that there is a conversation. Uh, I think the most important piece in, uh, in this puzzle is to recognize that the Palestinian cause is a cause of rights. Uh, um, and therefore, it's important that when civilized nations have any disagreements, that they recourse to courts. This is one of the main pillars of any liberal democracy around the world, right? Any civilized people, they go to courts and they listen to what the law has to say. This seems to be absent from any discussion when it comes to Palestine. Uh, so I think if if uh, if the West want to uh, prove that it's genuine about international law and the so-called rule-based order, they need to call for the application of international law. Israel must end it, its occupation. Israel's apartheid must be uh, dismantled. And the International Criminal Court must be supported to access the territory and uh, do its work, investigate uh, uh, those who committed uh, war crimes uh, or crimes against humanity. And I think now, um, considering the Israeli genocidal statements that we, we hear, there is serious allegation of the intention to commit a, a genocide. I'll stop there and uh, happy to answer questions. Thanks for that, Ahmed. Um, we have a question from one of our viewers, uh, which is, how can we pressure the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, uh, Karim Khan, to prosecute our war criminal leaders? Oh, well, yeah, ideally, we don't need to pressure him. He needs to do, to do his job. Uh, yeah. and, and the job of the prosecutor is to deliver on his mandate, which is not only to investigate uh, uh, war crimes and prosecute those who commit them, but also to, uh, to monitor situations under his investigation and issue uh, uh, the uh, so-called preventive statements that are stipulated in his office's policy paper. We didn't invent this mechanism. This is part of his mandate. This has been implemented in, in several situations, including in Ukraine. In the first week, there have been three uh, statements in Ukraine, and on average, a statement every two days, right? While in Palestine, uh, we haven't seen uh, any of that. Uh, um, in Palestine, I think it's quite incomprehensible that until now we don't have arrest warrants uh, issued. There is no excuse for that whatsoever. And I say this as an international criminal lawyer, as a matter of law, it's high, it's 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 really incomprehensible. And I would, if you allow me, I'll lay out some of the excuses we, we hear. Just Ahmed, if, if before you do that, that would be very helpful. But for, for viewers who aren't aware, just remind us, there is actually a formal investigation 
on the situation in Palestine. This was opened by the chief prosecutor, uh, Fatou Bensouda, before she left office just over a year ago. And that followed, uh, if I'm not mistaken, what they call a preliminary investigation that lasted a number of years. So as I understand it, the procedure is that the, the prosecutor can uh, opens a preliminary examination. I mean, these are formal legal procedures that can that can last as long as he or she likes. There's no limit on them. And then at the end of that, they decide whenever they decide the end of that is they can open a formal investigation, which uh, then could lead to indictments or arrests. So just to be clear, in this case, there was a preliminary investigation that lasted, I don't know, five or six years. I don't remember exactly. Then Fatou Bensouda opened the formal investigation. And they don't tell us what's going on behind the scenes. They say, we, we have an investigation and so on. But just to be clear, there's nothing that could stop the prosecutor at this point from issuing arrest warrants or issuing charges. Is that no, correct? No, 100%. It, it is correct. But one thing, just to be specific, um, it's it's quite normal and it's quite logical that the prosecutor doesn't say anything about the investigation as such. He needs to, pr to protect the confidentiality of the investigation. This is something we understand uh, very well. But at the same time, the prosecutor needs to be transparent about the ways in which he conduct the investigation. There is difference between telling us what is he investigating, which he shouldn't. Legally, he shouldn't tell us, and he needs to protect the confidentiality of the investigation. But he owes it to the victims to tell them why in certain situations he's very vocal and in others he's not. Why investigation is quite speedy in certain situations, while in others it's not. Uh, so we're talking about a matter of a transparency here, and it's not only important for the victims, it's also important for the credibility of the institution itself. So as you mentioned, there, there, there was a preliminary examination that lasted for uh, around five years. Uh, uh, and uh, in between those years, uh, Palestine made a, a referral. And when a state party makes a referral, the prosecutor has to open an investigation. So it was after that that the investigation was open. And before the investigation was open, the, the uh, former prosecutor asked the pre-trial chamber to decide on the territorial jurisdiction before moving on with the investigation. And in simple words, the prosecutor wanted to make sure what is the occupied Palestinian territories and what is the territory in which she can uh, practice her uh, jurisdiction. And the court decided that uh, in that matter, that Palestine is in fact a state party and the occupied Palestinian territory is uh, um, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. And therefore, any crimes committed on that territory, regardless of the nationality of the perpetrator, are within the jurisdiction of uh, the court. And any crime committed by Palestinians, Palestine nationals, is also under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. Now, the investigation was opened on 3rd March 2021. Uh, right before uh, uh, Fatou left, uh, Fatou Bensouda, former prosecutor, left office. And there was an active investigation before uh, Mr. Karim Khan took office. Now, 
of course, every situation is different. And legally, we can't really compare situations. But I said it before. I said it actually on a podcast with the Electronic Intifada with you, Nora, if you remember, with Saha Francis. When I was asked about Ukraine, I said, legally, it would be very hard to imagine how an arrest warrant will be issued in Ukraine before Palestine. And it was. It was issued at the highest level in, in Russia. An arrest warrant against Putin and against Ms. Belova, uh, uh, um, his commissioner for children. Right? So, and this, just to put things into perspective, so the audience also understand, uh, uh, the investigation in Ukraine was opened a year after the investigation in Palestine was uh, opened. Now, of course, there's different uh, considerations here to, to, to be considered. First, you, the, the, the prosecutor has access to the territory in Ukraine, and therefore the investigation might be easier. Right. So he has access to the territory. He can obtain hard evidence. He can examine crime scenes. So there is this argument that because he has access, the, the uh, investigation materialized faster, which is a very sound argument. But when it comes to Palestine, there is no access to the territory and therefore it's taking long. And the prosecutor has announced in the latest Assembly of State Parties of the, of the ICC that his plan, his objective for 2023 is to visit Palestine. We're almost at the end of 2023. It doesn't seem uh, uh, that it will happen. So the question is, will he deliver on his uh, promise? And if he didn't, he needs to be transparent with the public who or what prevented him from accessing right. the territory. But if I may, just, just one point on Palestine, just I don't want to leave it there. On Palestine, although access to the territory might be an obstacle, there are serious, there are certain crimes that they don't need access to their territory. So this justification or quote-unquote excuse does not apply. And here I'm speaking in particular about the war crime of transferring population into the occupied territory by the occupying power. In other words, settlements. For settlements, all the prosecutor needs is a satellite imagery. If he doesn't have access to such software, Google Maps can help, it's free. Uh, and in, in terms of international criminal law, if he wants to attribute the conduct to the perpetrator, the Israelis are not even hiding it. Uh, the, the, the decisions to build settlements are in the public domain. So in this particular crime, one of the most settled in, in international law, and in fact, in fact, this, this is a crime that is established since the Nuremberg uh, trial, when it was described Germanization of territory when the Nazis moved part of their population into other European uh, territories in order to colonize it. These are the words used the, by the uh, ICRC uh, commentary on the Geneva Conventions. So this is one of the most settled in facts and in law, and there is no excuse why until now there is no arrest warrants for those responsible for that. On top of that list will be Netanyahu himself. That's Ahmed Abufool. He is a legal research and advocacy officer for the Palestinian rights group Al Haq. Um, Ahmed, it, it just, you know, I, I, I think about the volume of work of organizations and advocacy, uh, you know, lawyers like yourself, um, not just, you know, in, in the last two weeks. Um, but as you said, in the last 75 years of violations of international law, that the international, so-called international community, that the West, that these like, you know, the, uh, these uh, bodies like the ICC, International Criminal Court, has um, so far refused to act uh, swiftly on any of these, um, you know, very 
well-documented violations. Um, in terms of your field workers right now who are in Gaza, um, documenting the incessant and relentless uh, attacks right now, you know, not, you know, we're talking about flattening uh, 15-story apartment buildings. We're talking about uh, the deliberate humanitarian crisis being manufactured uh, by cutting off water and electricity, bombing bakeries. Um, in your assessment, like how how is it, uh, what is the level of violations that you're seeing? Is this unprecedented in, in your opinion? Yes, in every sense of the word, and, and and I'm speaking as someone who lived through and, as I said, rather survived three uh, aggressions on Gaza. This is something like we've we've never seen before. Uh, uh, the brutality and the indiscriminate uh, um, targeting of residential areas um, cannot be justified. Uh, in terms of our work, and let me just. Uh, um, uh, commend the work of all Palestinian human rights defenders in these difficult times. It's uh, uh, they, they do an extremely important work in in a, in a very difficult circumstances. But we believe in, in in the thing we do, and we believe that we owe it to the victims that we make their voices heard, and and that we document these crimes. Hopefully, uh, someday that there will be an avenue where they will be used to achieve justice. Uh, in terms of our work and our field researchers. Uh, our field researchers became victims in this uh, uh, in this military aggression. Um, uh, their houses were destroyed. Uh, some of them had to uh, to flee. And we announced actually on our social media and our website that for the first time, we're not since we were established. And Al-Haq is the oldest human rights organization in, in Palestine and in the region. Since we were established in 1979, for the first time ever, we can't. Uh, document the crimes uh, uh, in Gaza because our field searchers had to uh, to evacuate, uh, uh, but we still do so uh, through our partners. It's important also to uh, to highlight that that there is uh, um, an admirable level of coordination between Palestinian civil society across Palestine, whether in 48 in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and in the Gaza Strip. And our partners in Gaza, those are the Palestinian Center for Human Rights and the Al Mizan Center for Human Rights, uh, still have uh, uh, some field researchers. And uh, our work in this regard is always joint. So we still receive information from the ground. We do our best. Uh, obviously, the, the safety of, of uh, our staff and our colleagues is a priority. But in such situation, we, we know that we cannot guarantee that every Palestinian is, is in real danger. In, in these difficult uh, difficult times, and yeah. Ahmed, we you know we're very familiar at the Electronic Intifada with the work that Al Haq, your organization, does, and Al Mizan and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, who often put out daily reports in the most difficult and horrifying circumstances. Mm. And we will often the the first thing we read in order to know what's happening on the ground. Um, but all of this evidence that you're collecting, it's important, obviously, to document what's happening. Uh, it also ought to be of assistance, if I'm correct. All of these groups have submitted over the years significant amounts of evidence to the International Criminal Court. Is that correct? That is correct, 100%.
So at this point, and 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 if I may, and and uh, we uh, through the electronic intifada say clearly, uh, if the prosecutor lacks information, he should contact us. We believe that we provided enough, and we continue to do so. And if there is anything else needed, please contact us. And also, um, you may be more familiar with this than me, but in cases like Ukraine or other situations around the world that the court is involved in. They do, do they not appeal for and collect other kinds of evidence like video evidence and photographic evidence of, of potential war crimes and crimes against humanity? So, for example, when Benjamin Netanyahu tweets on, on his own personal Twitter account a video of the um, Israeli military blowing up a huge apartment building or attacking in, uh, individual houses, as Netanyahu has done in the last couple of weeks, that would also be evidence that could be considered by the court. For example, if Vladimir Putin made a statement on Twitter, he doesn't use Twitter, it's completely hypothetical, saying, my plan is to kidnap children from Ukraine, which is what the International Criminal Court indictment claims that Putin is doing, transferring children from an occupied territory to the territory of the occupying power. So if he made a statement saying, I'm going to do this, the court could use that statement as part of an indictment, right? Well, the court can use that statement, but whether this statement will be qualified as evidence or not is different. I I would just like to explain something, just to differentiate. Now, the, the court... Uh, while doing investigation, must collect information. Now, we need to differentiate between information collected and when that information turns into evidence. The court has to process the information, has to assist it, has to verify it, and then decides if it can qualify to be an evidence or not. It's not not very simplistic as one statement will justify an indictment, in all honesty. But in certain cases, as I said, we think the, the information is there. In other cases, the prosecutor might need access to the territory or could use if, the information those who have access provided. But if you're a high official of a country and you say, I'm going to cut off food, water, electricity, fuel, medicine to an entire population in a territory over which I have control because Israel controls the land, sea, and the air around Gaza, and where I'm engaging in military operations, that's on its face a crime against humanity. I mean, I'm just trying to say that that there are crimes on such an enormous and urgent scale that hiding behind these technicalities, the, the, the level of the urgency is such that if this court were functioning as it should, Mm-hmm. they would not be waiting. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying this This can only be interpreted as willful complicity. I and, mean, and, I know and, you're not in a position to say that, but I'm, I'm saying it. No, I'm, 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 I'm in a position to say what my, uh, uh, um, my integrity allows me to say, and I'm speaking professionally. I'm, I don't disagree that the court has enough information in my personal view and my personal assessment in, ser- in certain crimes, in particular settlements, to issue arrest warrants. So now that this has been established, talking about evidence, we have to understand that criminal proceedings are 
uh, of a high threshold, and he needs to uh, the, the prosecution team need to to prove beyond reasonable doubt. So, of course, the statement is an important piece of information. It can actually establish the element, the mental element of the crime, the intent to commit the crime. But there are certain other elements of the crime that still need to be established, the, the, the material element of the crime, so the, the conduct itself. And then the nexus between that intention and that conduct need to also be established. So. Of course, there is this technicality in international criminal law, understandably so, but it doesn't mean that the court, in my assessment, does not have enough information to uh, uh, start uh, its investigation. No, to start, sorry, issuing arrest warrants already. Well, we thank you very much for your time, Ahmed. Before you go, we've got one more question, if you'd like to discuss this one, one more from our viewers um, tonight on the live chat. And the question is, how useful is the international law framework for Palestine or elsewhere, given the context of imperialism? Yeah, I, I understand this question very well. And perhaps uh, to answer it, I have to be uh, um, very clear. I will answer it as a Palestinian, not necessarily as a representative of Al-Haq, but I will give a personal experience. I spent uh, uh, almost 13 years in, in the human rights industry since I started studying law. And as you know, Palestinians come from all, you know, with all shapes and colors and all different ways of thinking and, and ideology and different belief systems. And a lot of my peers never trusted international law because they view it as, as a tool for new colonialism and imperialism. Uh, personally, I... I uh, um, I always believe that international law is something that can be used, but in and by itself cannot achieve self-determination and liberation. Uh, international law is only a tool that can be used if the Palestinians have a clear uh, a national uh, program, a clear vision what they want to achieve, then international law can be used. But in and by itself cannot be the only strategy to achieve liberation. But th the story I want to, to, to tell is that I've always defended international law, and I, and I still think that it must be uh, uh, upheld. The fact that the West apply it selectively, it shouldn't uh, push us to reach the conclusion to say we want to recourse uh, to other alternatives, because other alternatives are ugly. Uh, we need to hold on to our humanity. We're a civilized uh, nation uh, uh, since we ever uh, existed as Palestinians, and we should always recourse to law and democratic uh, 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 means in a way. But I, I, what I wanted to say is when Israel designated six Palestinian organizations as terrorists, I had right. I had received phone calls from uh, friends and, and classmates since university that I haven't talked to for a decade. And they told me, see, even <laughs> you with your binder, with your bin, with your files, with your suits, with your courtrooms, you're also called the terrorist. So what's the point? Uh, and this is, I think, uh, this is a very dangerous phenomenon. Now we have a whole generation that is watching and seeing Western hypocrisy and reaching that conclusion uh, that international law is not meant for us. Maybe we don't have the right skin tone that uh, that uh, the West call for international law and accountability for the Palestinians. And I think this is a very uh, uh, dangerous phenomenon, and I think we're going in a very dark place if the if the Western leaders won't woke up 
and stop their hypocrisy and selectivity and uh, uphold international law in all situations and treat Palestinians as equal human beings because we are not human animals. We are not subhumans and we are not children of a lesser God. And let me conclude with this. I said it in other uh, uh, context. The Palestinian people are not asking for more than basic, their basic human rights. As a matter of fact, in my, my humble view, I think the word for long has misunderstood us. We're not even asking. We're demanding those rights. We're entitled to those rights, regardless of what the world feel or, or think about those rights. And we will achieve them. We know that our freedom is inevitable. And what we try to do is only to minimize the suffering of our people until we achieve liberation and freedom, because our oppressor is a brutal, uh, cruel, apartheid regime that must be dismantled and that its very existence in the 21st century is a stain on humanity and it's shameful that is being uh, supported and enabled by the West. Indeed. Ahmed Abufoul, uh, you are a legal research and advocacy officer at the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq. Uh, you're originally from Hamama and grew up as a refugee in Gaza. Ahmed, again, thank you uh, to you and all of your colleagues at Al-Haq for continuing to do this good work and um, for being with us today on the live stream. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we are now joined by Dr. Tarek Lubani. Uh, he's an emergency room physician who has worked for years at Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Tarek is also the co-founder of the Glia Project, which manufactures open source medical equipment. Uh, Tarek, you're coming to us uh, from Ontario. Tell us about uh, the conversations that you are having with your colleagues uh, in Gaza, especially at Ashifa Hospital, uh, where you are so familiar um, with that kind of work. Thank you so much for having me, Nora. Um, the conversations have gone from bad to worse, really. Um, I'm just going to raise my audio a bit. Is that better in terms of the audio? Yeah, that sounds good. The conversations have really gone from bad to worse. It's been unfortunate. Um, I mean, at this point, I think we've all kind of lost the words to, to express how dire the situation is. So when the war first started, really the conversations were almost all about the medical aspect of the situation. It was to talk about what exactly is happening and to discuss what were the little tweaks that could be made to make their response more sound medically. You know, I was getting lots of photos and videos of people who I had taught, people who I had worked with, where they were asking me maybe for some feedback or sharing with me some of their experiences, especially because this is the first war in which Glia has had some tourniquets that were already prepositioned in the field. Generally, we've been very much reacting because the tourniquet project is so young um, but this was the first time that we already had almost a thousand tourniquets out there and uh, there were more that were sort of being manufactured as time went on. So as I was getting this feedback, you know, it very much was uh, a spirit of the medical and the talk was all about the medical. At this point, what does it matter what training a person has when a hospital courtyard can be bombed? What does it matter if a patient is a little bit injured or a lot injured when you have to sterilize with vinegar. So we're talking about situations that have now gotten to the point where medical solutions aren't available. 
there is no such thing as advanced medical support now in, in the Gaza Strip. All medical support is very basic. All of it is basically what your, your mother or father would have done for you when you were seven. Essentially, this is booboology. And the problem here is that, you know, you're trying to treat a booboo and that booboo is a severed leg, is an arm that's bleeding out, is a person who's totally missing um, uh, maybe a, a critical aspect or a lot of blood or something of this variety. So I think at this point, really, we've shifted a lot of our effort from the outside, from trying to support them in the strictest medical sense, to, of course, trying to enter any kind of humanitarian aid. If we can get medical supplies, it won't be so dire. However, with the threats to hospitals, with the killing of paramedics, uh, the wounding of many more, the destruction of, I believe, the number today is 23 ambulances, with all of that going on, really there's only one solution here, which is to stop the bombing, to have an immediate ceasefire right now. The Ministry of Health has already started calling for a ceasefire in a very limited way. They're not asking for a ceasefire on everybody. They're just asking for a ceasefire on, um, on the people who are trying to do the work, the ambulances, the hospitals, the medical personnel. But of course, I think we all know that the ceasefire has to be wider than that. Tarek, um, uh, we had you on uh, an episode of The Brief earlier this week, and you were talking about how um, when patients come in with these kinds of injuries, you know, you, uh, just uh, horrific, um, uh, you know, unimaginable uh, limbs severed, uh, you know, uh, mutilation, uh, uh, unspeakable things. They're already coming in being severely dehydrated and being uh, malnourished because of the last week and a half of Israel's uh, intensified siege, which is uh, you know, compounded by the 16 years prior uh, ongoing of, of a siege. Um, can you talk about what it's like for doctors to, to be able to assess the kind of treatment that patients, and, and we're not even talking about the, the physical and mental emotional trauma, um, especially that we see in children right now who are, who, you know, obviously half the Gaza population, but who, who are being brought in um, by the hundreds to these already overwhelmed hospitals. Um, how do physicians make the kinds of determinations uh, in order to treat patients um, under these kinds of circumstances? We have a pretty standard set of rules that we proceed under in situations like this. Basically, it's called disaster triage. There's a few different models, but right now the main model in Gaza is trying to figure out the people who will benefit from help and the people who would not. And then that's multiplied or balanced against the resources required. So for example, let's say three people come in and one of them will require the resources of the other two, then that person is left, uh, is left to die or is not treated, um, is triaged in a category that's called expectant, where you, you expect them to die. In most circumstances, for example, in Canada, we could have a person who we're 99% sure is already dead, and we might resuscitate them for an hour because we want to try, we want to give them every chance at life. 
in Gaza, it might be, it's not the opposite. It's not somebody who has a 1% chance of death doesn't get treatment, you know, but it's, it's uh, flipped over. People who have a reasonable chance of survival with the right tools still can't receive that, that kind of treatment because it would mean depriving many other people who need less treatment. And also, the, the thing you have to think about, you know, I'm, I'm imagining, because I did lots of the disaster triage previously, I'm imagining the, the disaster triage officer, the, the doctor at the very front, and the calculations that they're making, they're calculating the chance of survival of the patient. They're calculating the post-injury care that's needed. Let's say somebody is shot in the leg, you know, like, like I was, for example. That person won't need very much post-operative care. It's a simple surgery or simple treatment, and then you can more or less let them go home. Whereas people who need serious surgeries are then going to occupy beds, take up nurses, take up medical staff, medications, gauze, all of this other stuff that can otherwise be used to treat people who are who are not in that position. Tariq, these are these are terrible decisions that these doctors are making by the minute. Tariq, I mean, I, I was just going to ask you, I mean, when you think of disaster triage, you think of something that maybe you have an, a natural disaster or a terrible event and doctors have to do this, t take these kinds of terrible decisions. But w what does it do when you're doing it not for a day, not for three days, but day after day after day, week after week after week? How, how can doctors even do that, making des decisions of who lives and dies potentially? And we've seen just heart-rending videos of medical personnel and doctors breaking down. And we've seen also examples of medical personnel coming to a scene or seeing coming to a triage area where patients are, uh, are being brought in and finding their own children or their own uh, uh, spouse there or their own parent. I mean, how can medical workers even cope in such a situation? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a terrible situation. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, natural disasters, like clearly that's something that we think about. Uh, when I was working, I was one of the emergency doctors in a hospital in northern Canada at a time when there were many forest fires. And so I happened to be responsible for planning the evacuation of that hospital. And I tell you, I had all the resources in the world. Now, that's probably similar because in Gaza, as I understand it, it is a natural disaster. These hospitals are blowing up on their own as per the latest reports. So, you know, I think we can, we can try to match it onto there. But even if you do, the fact is that they do not have any of the resources to do what they need. And that in and of itself is, funny enough, both a huge stress and a bit of a relief. Because when you have nothing, it takes the pressure off of you in terms of what to do. This doesn't in and of itself resolve the psychological trauma that, that people have. It just reduces the number of decisions. There's no decision paralysis because most of the trees are gone. You know, so most of the branches of the decision tree. So for example, there was no real decision-making process in whether or not to evacuate. You know, as I had sort of uh, said previously on, on the brief, uh, Nora, when we spoke, the reality is that they don't have the resources to evacuate. They don't have the path, a safe path through which to evacuate, and they don't have a place to go if they do evacuate. 
And so there was no decision to be made there. You know, you're, you're resolved cognitively very, very easily. It's like, okay, this is clearly a PR stunt on the Israeli side. As for the breakdowns, this is something that we kind of consider, like the, the way you think of it when you're working in these emergencies is that there are injuries in the field and there are injuries in the hospital. There are people who get wounded out there by the literal physical bombs and there are people who get wounded in here by the psychological and mental bombs. And one of the scenes that I'll really never forget was this older gentleman, he was in his 50s, and he was a pediatrician during one of the wars. We're sitting there, we're treating, and he, was, he had been through war after war. I mean, he had been through more wars than any of us who were there. And at one moment, um, he was treating somebody, and I, I don't know if that person reminded him of somebody or what, but he just snapped. He freaked out, he started yelling, he started screaming, he started hitting things, he started breaking things. And he was saying like, what is this? Every two years we're going to have a war. And he was so upset and functionally had gone from an asset to a liability. Now, what did we do with him? Did we sit there, explore his feelings, ask him how he was doing, check in? No, we did none of those things. We physically restrained him, dragged him off and got mad at him. Because it's like, we're trying to do some shit here and you're disrupting it. Obviously, all of the other stuff, the kindness, the, the sort of human connection, all of that, that happened later from all of us. But in the moment, that person goes from an asset to a liability, they have to be removed from the emergency. He was never able to practice again. He was never able to come back into a hospital again. And I met him a few years later, and I saw him, and I'm like, oh my God, how are you doing? You know, I haven't seen you, but I don't do pediatrics, so maybe that's why I haven't seen you. And he was just like, yeah, I just after the war, I couldn't go back to the hospital. It, just, it was too terrible. And so when we look at the losses in terms of the, the occupation, in terms of the war, in terms of the siege, yes, there are the losses like people getting shot, blown up, crushed. There are, of course, the other losses that we don't talk much about, especially because of our culture, like the suicides. And then there are these kinds of losses, the people who are treating, who burn out. The burnout rate of emergency physicians in Canada is 50% at five years. Just think about that for a second. Now try to imagine and multiply that number into a place like Gaza. Emergency is a hard place to be at the best of times, and trust me, Canada is the best of times. So what of the people who, are, who remain, who are in places like Gaza? So I'm sure, obviously this isn't something you hear discussed much, it uh, isn't something that we talk about because doctors generally don't talk about their feelings to outsiders, but it is something that's happening, and I'm sure that by the day doctors are being crushed, doctors are being broken, and doctors are going from people who are able to help into liabilities who can never go back to the hospital again. And on top of that, uh, we've heard so many reports of doctors, senior doctors sometimes, people who, who have perhaps decades of skill and experience in teaching, being murdered with their entire families in their, in their homes. And um, one of our, our friends, uh, uh, Bilal Dabur, you may know him. He's a doctor in Gaza. Um, his uncle, who's a doctor, was killed. 
um, and his uh, the his uh, I believe it was the head of the um, Faculty of Medicine at IUG at the Islamic University of Gaza was killed. So this this one young doctor uh, has seen his uncle, who's a doctor, who's been killed. The head of the faculty killed, and and as you mentioned, many many ambulance staff and paramedics have been killed as well. So it it's um, it's an all out attack on the health workers as they're trying to help people in a desperate situation. I mean, these are crimes that. Uh, are, they're just off the scale, as you said. We've lost the words to to, to describe them. Yeah, and I mean, I, I want to recognize all of these doctors and all of these healthcare workers who are injured and killed. Every death is unacceptable. Um, however, there are few ways that you can declare you're a non-combatant more clearly than being in an ambulance. How could you possibly declare more clearly that you're a non-combatant? And this is, this is why I think people find attacks on hospitals and attacks on, on ambulances and things like that so atrocious. It's, it's, uh, it really is obscene. And one of the uh, people who I think you might be talking about is Dr. Midhat Saidam, who is a senior plastic surgeon. Um, I, I didn't know that yeah. he was related to Bilal, but you know, Dr. Midhat had been on duty for No, that was... Uh, that was sorry. There was Dr. Muhammad Dabur, who is related okay. to, to Bilal, who was also killed. Okay. Uh, well, Dr. Midhat Saidam, then another doctor to add to this gruesome list, was a, plastics, a senior plastic surgeon. And like, if you were to see a photo of him, he instantly, you would instantly know who this human being was. He absolutely oozed this kindness and gentleness. And... Um, Anybody who knows a plastic surgeon knows that they are usually very delicate people, and he was a delicate human being who saw some of the worst things imaginable. And seven days in, I, I wasn't in direct communications with him, but one of my colleagues who was, you know, he said that he received a message um, that said, you know, I've been here for seven days. I'm going to go visit my family, make sure everything is okay, and then come back. And he went, and they all died. And I've been thinking about that. You know, I've been reflecting on what, which, which would have been the gift for him to die with his entire lineage or for him to survive them all. And I don't have a clear answer for that. But I wonder if it is a little bit of a gift for him that he didn't have to mourn 29 or more. I don't remember the exact count of all of the family members who died, but it was approximately 30 of, of his family members, his entire family his extended family, I mean, everybody, everybody. So, you know, yeah, the, the thing about the loss of these doctors, too, is that they've been building something. Dr. Midhat was building something. He was building the plastic surgeons up. He was building the system up. He was going to be one of the most important doctors. His hands were going to be some of the most valuable hands in Gaza after the ceasefire, and he's gone. There's nobody who can fill those shoes, not now and not for a while. Well, uh, Dr. Tarek Lubani, you are um, uh, an emergency room physician based in Canada. You uh, frequently, regularly uh, work at Ashifa Hospital in the Gaza Strip. Um, you're also my good friend, and, and I 
and and all of us here at the Electronic Intifada are very grateful for all the work that you do. Um, I also want to point out that you are uh, the co-founder of the GLIA project, which has been um, manufacturing open source medical equipment like tourniquets, as you mentioned. Um, where can people go to to learn more about GLIA uh, and, and what's happening with that? Um, you can find us on all of our socials, including glia.org. We're currently running a fundraising campaign. Our offices were um, unfortunately heavily damaged during an attack on the International Eye Hospital of Gaza. And so we are now no longer able to produce tourniquets inside Gaza. We had a war plan that we've enacted previously, and that, that plan is now stopped. So we're uh, spending sort of money that we're raising. There's a fundraising campaign as well if people would like to contribute. We're spending the money that we're raising both on making out from outside the tourniquets and bringing them in. We're, for example, making tourniquets in Poland for use in Ukraine um, and have been doing that for, for the last year or so. And so we're redirecting all of the tourniquets at the moment into, uh, into Gaza, well, all available. Obviously, there's still some needs elsewhere. Uh, so if people want to support that, that's a really good way to do it. If uh, people want to follow us really on social media, amplifying the message. But at the end of the day, this is not a conflict that tourniquets fix. This is a conflict that ceasefires fix, yeah. that comprehensive peace deals fix. So I think let's, let's also keep that in mind. We do need the Band-Aids. We do need the tourniquets. They are a Band-Aid in a case like this. But we do need something more comprehensive too. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Tarek Lubani, thank you so much for being with us on uh, our live stream today. We'll have you back on very soon, of course. Um, and we're now going to bring in uh, our good friend, John Elmer. He's a writer and researcher and my co-host at The Brief Podcast. Um, and he's been with us every step of the way here the last two weeks on these live streams. I do want to ask our viewers uh, to go and hit the like button. Um, if you can, it helps spread the video. It, it um, gives us a little bit more visibility. So uh, thank you for doing that. John, um, we wanted to bring you in to talk about uh, Israel's uh, so-called war plans at this stage uh, as it is relentlessly bombing Gaza. Um, what have you been following and how can you analyze uh, these, these, uh, these so-called plans by, by Israel? Yeah, I mean, I think they're defined by the absence of a plan. Um, I think that there's, um, you know, a lot of discussion about what comes after Hamas, as if the success of the Israeli operation is in any way possible. Um, but Israel does this every time. They did it in 2006 during the July war in Lebanon when um, Chief of Staff Dan Halutz told us on day one that all of Hezbollah's rockets had been knocked out and, uh, quote unquote, we won the war. So this kind of language from Israel is common, and I think we should keep that in mind. The idea that you can skip past uh, a ground operation against a heavily dug in uh, resistance movement that's been waiting their whole life to fight this, that has 500 miles of tunnels, according to the Israelis, um, you know, many of these tunnels deeper than 25 stories below the ground. They have the capacity within that tunnel network to resupply 
Um, they have the ability to move around at will. Um, it's it's not something. I mean, I I, I saw the the Israeli plan um, idea. I didn't really see anything in that plan. The plan uh, step one, according to Gallant, is destroy Hamas. Um, step two uh, was. Uh, a, a slightly lesser war. And then step three was bring in some sort of collaborator government. I mean, I saw in The Economist, which was based on the meetings with Blinken and um, Netanyahu, um, that, that you know, the, these meetings are asking for a plan and there's no plan. Um, the Economist talked about um, that the discussions at the meeting included bringing Mohammed Dahlan back to Gaza, who people may remember was uh, run out of Gaza uh, during a U.S.-backed plan to overthrow Hamas in the first place, which was unsuccessful in 2006 after Hamas won elections. Um, and so that was 2006. So that's uh, 17 years of Hamas preparing for the next time um, I, I don't think we should look too much into an Israeli plan. It, it, it's not serious. The ability for Palestinians in Gaza to defend themselves as a resistance movement is so significant that I want, I think we need to be shown some sort of uh, reality before we accept any of this Israeli madness that we're hearing in, in all, in all, ven in all forums. Uh, and we also see, um, you know, top Israeli military officials uh, saying, uh, you know, that that they they're not even going to uh, address the the captives that uh, Hamas has has taken uh, the Israeli captives that that they're going to destroy Gaza before they even think of their own people. Basically, um, what do you what do you make of <laughs> of the? I mean, basically, Hannibal Directive on a large scale here. Yeah, well, the Hannibal Directive is um, sort of a long-used Israeli policy of killing their 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 captives, um, like killing their soldiers before they can be taken captive. Because the idea is that what comes after your soldier is captured. This long history of prisoner exchanges in the Israel-Palestine conflict and the um, and Israel's conflicts um, in general are are not worth it. If we remember back to are not worth people's lives, right? From a conscripted army. So that that's a bold statement for somebody, uh, for a country that forces their people to serve, that it's not worth it to protect them. But we remember in 2006, when one single tank gunner, Gilad Shalit, was captured um, by the Qassam Brigades. He was held for 2,000 days and was traded for more than 1,000 prisoners including 200 of them that had life sentences, including Yahya Sinwar, who is now the Politburo head of Hamas, um, you know, who said that uh, they thought prison was our graveyard, but it was our academy. Um, so you have senior positions um, taken by people who were in those prisoner exchanges that Israel doesn't want um, any part of. So they want to, um, they, they ha the, the Hannibal Directive is, um, is to prevent um, these trades where uh, Palestinian fighters uh, are, are exchanged. And so... And, and John, just to, to, to clarify for, for viewers who may not know, the Hannibal, Hannibal Directive basically is the Israeli army practice that if they see one of their uh, soldiers 
who is being taken captive like the the you know they they see them and and the resistance fighters have them and they're pulling them away they're allowed to shell the the uh, the the fighters who are taking the prisoner and the prisoner and kill the prisoner to prevent them being taken alive and being used as a uh, bargaining chip in a hostage negotiation. That's right. And, and the minister. Yeah, and, and just to, just to say, uh, in the uh, we reported on the this testimony of the Israeli survivor uh, of the the woman who is a civilian who survived uh, what happened in Kibbutz Bari on October seven, and her testimony that she gave on Israel Radio is that the. Uh, army, when they came in after many hours, uh, they just started killing and shelling everyone indiscriminately, the Palestinian fighters and the Israeli civilians who are with them alike. And she actually says in this interview that basically she calls it the crossfire, but she also makes clear that the Israeli army basically killed everyone. And uh, so, I mean... This is this is a real thing. They actually do this. Uh, they'll kill their own soldiers and possibly civilians if this this account is, uh, you know, can can be taken seriously, which I think it can. I mean, is that isn't that extraordinary? Does the U.S. or Canada have a do- any kind of doctrine like that? No, and no, and Israel says that they retracted the doctrine, of course, because uh, it it really doesn't seem uh, like the kind of army you want to fight in when they say that we're going to kill you because you're not worth, uh, uh, you know, saving. And I mean, to note that the person who talked, the Israeli minister who talked about um, that the the they were not going to try to protect um, the, the the prisoners. Uh, was wearing a flak jacket inside giving the press conference. So just to give you an idea of the the distance between what it is to fight on the ground and hope that your army is going to bring you home um, versus these cowards in inside a building wearing a flak jacket giving uh, these statements. So what we do know about the prisoners, um, Abu Obeda, the spokesperson for the Qassam Brigades, told us a fair bit the other day um, in his audio message about the prisoners. Um, he said that 22 of them have been killed already by Israeli bombardment. Um, and he named one of the people that had been killed just most recently. Um, you know, he said that they're holding 200, um, about 200 in the Kassam Brigades, but that there's 50 others at least um, that are held by other factions and even um, and even by um, non-aligned groups. Because as I think we saw, um, once the Gaza command of the IDF collapsed and there was 30 breaches in the wall, um, there's a second part of the operation that happens uh, that happened outside of Qassam's understanding that there would be no defense provided by the IDF. So it was almost like a Hannibal directive in the whole South for people. They just abandoned everybody. Um, the military just completely abandoned people. I mean, we're hearing stories of civilian groups that drove in their own cars down to the kibbutz to get people out of the safe uh, how the safe rooms that they were locked into because the army just completely, uh, completely abandoned them. Um, 
and uh, Abu Ubaidah said very directly that um, the civilians were brought to them um, during the battle on the 7th. They didn't have time to sort out who was who at the time, um, but that they would take care of the foreigners that are civilians that had nothing to do with the IDF and that they, those people would be returned um, what appeared to be unconditionally whenever the bombing stops. Because the real focus for the prisoners is the fact that the entire Gaza command collapsed because their commanders, in part, were all captured. So if you've got a, a thousand fighters uh, released from prison for one lowly tank gunner, um, and you have in your possession at this particular point as prisoners, the Kassam Brigades have presumably many uh, commanders, officers, um, you know, intelligence officials. We know that the military intelligence uh, hub was one of the places that was overrun. Um, and the Kassam Brigade said that they're going to take care of these prisoners. And we know from the Shalit exchange that Shalit was never harmed. He was never tortured. He was never subjected to what Palestinians are subjected to um, in Israeli captivity. Um, he was treated well. Um, and Kassam said they will treat those prisoners well. So the fact that, that that the distance between that reality and Israeli ministers standing in a flak jacket inside saying that they're not going to protect um, their captives, uh, the prisoners, because they want to massacre civilians from the air, is really a very telling moment. I mean, the Hannibal Directive is always a very telling moment of the Israeli army. You have a conscripted army that says, you know, they won't go and get you. I mean, um, most armies' main motto is no land, you know, no man left behind. Because if you're fighting for a force like this, you would like the force to at least defend your existence and not treat you, um, you know, treat you like cannon fodder. Literally. As expendable. But I have a couple of questions, John. I mean, f first, back to the so-called war plan or the steps that your Afghalant announced today. We seem to be in the first phase, which is destroy everything by fire. Um, and then the second phase is some sort of ground operation. I've seen talk about uh, that they're going to cut Gaza in two from north to south. They're going to drive down the middle and uh, uh, from the boundary with Israel to the sea and split it north to south. Um, and then the third phase, which I don't know what it, you know, that that's, uh, who knows what that, that is. But I mean, from what, from what they've said or from what you can discern, what will this look like? I mean, Ahmed Abur Tema, our friend in Gaza, said to me, he said, I fear that, the worst is yet to come. And is that true for the people in Gaza? And the second thing is, we know what the Israeli generals or defense ministers say in public, but what do you think they're saying? I mean, I'm just asking you to speculate clearly because we can't know. What do you think they're saying to each other behind the scenes? How confident are they behind all this public bluster? 
I mean, there's no way with all of this American solidarity that's happening um, with all these missions, with all these military meetings, I just can't imagine that the Americans are telling them that this is a good idea. Um, you know, we were hearing immediately after the attack that, you know, the Israelis kept saying, all their experts kept saying that the ground invasion was going to begin in 36 hours, right? We heard that from day two. Now we're on day 14 and it doesn't, um, it, it's not clear when that's going to happen. Yes, it would be worse. A ground invasion of any kind into the population densities of the Gaza Strip is going to be brutal. Um, I think general military plan for the Gaza Strip is, uh, you know, 60 years old. The settlements in the Gaza Strip were built by Ariel Sharon as uh, military positions. Um, the settlements that were evacuated in 2005. Um, that land still mostly exists in the way that it was left. Um, I imagine that the Israeli war plan um, will involve essentially moving into those settlement areas that were originally put there as military positions designed to chop up the territory and to make it into smaller, um, you know, more manageable sections. But you know what doesn't care about where the settlements are? The tunnels. The tunnels don't care about what uh, what area they move in from or how much they cut the Gaza Strip into sections or how, how long they occupy the Gaza Strip. The tunnel apparatus, which, you know, people sometimes think about crawling around on your hands and knees or something like this. These are tunnels equipped with motorcycles, uh, with vehicles, with weaponry, with all the fighters cutting the Gaza Strip into seg into segments like Sharon's dream was, the, the dream in Gaza was to cut the Strip up into sections, make it impossible to move around in Gaza um, and make people leave so that they, uh, Israelis could take these beautiful Mediterranean coastal, um, you know, territories to make it part of the state of Israel. And Sharon said when he withdrew that we had a dream, but the dream could not be implemented. That's what Sharon said when he announced the 2005 withdrawal. Uh, we had a dream, but the dream couldn't be implemented. And John, so the pieces of that dream are there, cutting up the territory using the, the model of the settlements that had been put there with that original purpose. But so just as a reminder for, for people, prior to 2005, Israel maintained a number of civilian settlements, so-called civilian settlements. I mean, where they basically were using Israeli Jewish women and children as human shields for Israeli military bases in the interior of Gaza. But they had about six or 7,000 civilian settlers there at one point. And they were, the settlements and the settler roads within Gaza uh, took up something like 40% of the land area of Gaza, as well as uh, large parts of the coastline. So the settlers were on the sea, and then they were, they were connected by roads to, um, to Israel, and the army was there. Now, I'm assuming that prior to 2005, uh, the resistance did not have the same extent of tunnels or various assets, uh, and yet Israel was still unable to protect the settlements inside Gaza. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, the settlements were under attack constantly, especially in the Second Intifada. So um, 
Yeah. And the thing is that the Palestinians know that, right? The Palestinians know better than anyone in the world how their territory was chopped up, how many checkpoints there were inside of Gaza. I mean, Gaza m made the West Bank look like a freedom land. The amount of checkpoints that they would just close them permanent, like close them for days and you just couldn't move up and down in the strip. Um, so presumably what the Israelis are going to do if they're seriously talking about a ground invasion is presumably they're going to move into these, um, you know, more open spaces of the settlements um, and use those as I, I would assume use those as bases as Ariel Sharon intended um, for their whole lives. But that's what the Palestinians know they're going to do. So you're I'm, talking I'm... about ex expertise um, and preparation waiting for something that the Israelis couldn't do 20 years ago. Unless, of course, they have expelled the population from Gaza, which is a horrifying idea, but one that looks like many people in Gaza are saying to me that we think that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to force us out to Egypt. There's also uh, people in Gaza have been talking about... Um, how in 2014, after Sisi came to power in Egypt, they forced the, the Egyptian uh, citizens who lived on the Egyptian side of the boundary with Gaza in, uh, in, in communities along the border. Basically, all of their homes were demolished by the Egyptians and they were expelled. And there's people in Gaza who say, oh, they're trying to, they're going to force us to go and live in the areas where the Egyptians were expelled from. How much truth there is to that, I don't know. But the point is, that's what the kind of thing people are, are saying in Gaza. And um, so that, so one question for me is, how would this, I mean, we're talking about scenarios I don't even like to verbalize, but how, how would this kind of mass expulsion, if Israel pulls it off, change the scenario, change the picture that you're talking about? And just also to note that one of the Israeli ministers, I forget who it is now, uh, was on the, the, the tip of my tongue, but had said yesterday, I don't think it was the defense minister, but it was another senior official who said at the end of this, Gaza will be smaller. I mean, what what can you discern from all these different things? Yeah, they want to build a bigger buffer zone so that when they break through the ghetto the next time, there's more distance or that you're able to push rockets and mortars from the border back. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of that means shrinking the Gaza Strip. Because of the settlements, because of the way Gaza was built, it's densely populated in concentrated areas because inside Gaza used to be 10 separate ghettos. Um, if Israel is actually talking about fighting in tunnels, they need to remove the buildings that are on top of those tunnels because their forces can't muster underneath while Palestinians can fire from rooftops on their armor. Um, I think that the Israelis, if they're actually talking about a ground invasion, would need to remove the civilians because the civilians are just another um, of the many obstacles. You know, it's so crass to even talk this way. It's it's crazy. I I, I much more believe the Israelis are going to carry out civilian massacres from the air 
and not even get into this, but we've seen their commanders down on the Gaza border saying to the troops that you're going in. It's hard to imagine that the generals can then look at their troops if they don't. It's going to be hard to imagine them looking at them when they do, because they're going to get hit really, really hard. Um, but they they seem to be promising something that's difficult to, to, to come back from. Um, and I think that the reason they want the civilian population out is because they want to level these buildings. I mean, when I lived in the Gaza Strip, they were creating the buffer zone and they were trying to get rid of trees because militants were using trees as cover. And the Israelis are like, we have to remove all of the trees and create this buffer zone. Um, so what are they going to do with a 15-story building that's beside another 15-story building that's beside another 15-story building, all full of civilians starving, dehydrated, drinking? And people are saying people are drinking boiled mud water now and scraping the, the water off the top and leaving the mud in the pot. Like Tarek said, people are using vinegar in the hospitals as antiseptics. It's, it's, it's a brutal situation. Um, there's no way you can fight an urban war. There's no way you can even fight a limited incursion, what they like to call it, a limited incursion without it being devastating to the civilian population. And like we said yesterday on the show, people are piling into these places because the, one of the stories that we don't hear all that much is what's happening to the people that are surviving. The people that are surviving, from what I'm hearing, they're moving constantly. The people who have left their home are constantly on the move. Um, there's nowhere safe. But each time they move, they're collecting the entire number of people that were in that place seeking shelter. So they go from one place where there's 30 of them, and then the 30 move to another place, and now there's 60 of them. That kind of mathematics plus a ground invasion is, um, I can't even, it's unspeakable. The only way that the Israelis will be able to move um, throughout the Gaza Strip to fight a war against 40,000 underground fighters um, while your commanders are being held and they have the ability to move all over um, underneath you and then to come up from a tunnel into a building. So go from a, a, from a protected tunnel, move into a building, move up to the top floor of that building, strike Israeli tanks that are underneath from the top where they're not armored it's chaos for the Israelis. And that's just on the surface. If you're promising to wipe out Hamas, you're promising to go underground and fight concerted battles under the ground, which has never happened before. Um, the Americans used to send these, um, you know, they called them tunnel rats um, when the in Vietnam when the Vietnamese resistance used tunnels to move their weaponry all around and the Americans couldn't do anything about it, they were forced to send guys down, individual soldiers with a handgun and a flashlight. Is Israel ready for that? They have engineering units and they have special forces units that have been preparing to fight underground. Um, but the scale It'd be one thing to say you are fighting into one tunnel to try to get to one 
particular room that was in the tunnel. But the tunnel apparatus, the network, the Warren, um, you know, like Israel couldn't fight in the old city of Nablus in 2002. They couldn't fight in the Janine refugee camp in 2002, but now they're going to go down underneath and fight these groups to kill tens of thousands of fighters. I think we might be wasting our time even talking about an Israeli war plan when that's the scale of what they're going to confront. And when you talk about the Israeli war plan, I can't imagine that all of these, you know, two aircraft carriers, a Marine expeditionary unit, all kinds of intelligence officers. We saw Biden in Israel shaking hands with Delta Force soldiers that are already on the ground in Israel. I can't imagine those people are telling them go down into a 500 mile tunnel network and fight the Kassam brigades but, who are waiting for you. But John, that all makes a great deal of sense. But you mentioned earlier that you think that, you, obviously we, we're not in the room, so we can't know, but you can't imagine that the American war planners and, and generals and so on are telling the Israelis, this is a good idea. But if we think about another situation that we pay close attention to, it was the Americans pushing Ukraine to carry out a counteroffensive and saying, you have to do it, you have to do it, and we've given you everything you need. And it was the Ukrainians pushing back and saying that uh, we can't do this, it will be suicide. Uh, and the Americans say, you have to do it anyway. Mm -hmm and pushing the Ukrainians into a calamitous counteroffensive that made zero progress and that was based on fantasies that uh, the Ukrainian uh, forces are going to break through the Russian lines and uh, rush down to the Sea of Azov and divide the area controlled by the Russian forces. In fact, in a way, it sounds a little bit like the Israeli plan for the, the the Gaza Strip. Right. But my, my point is, with Biden saying they have to go in and destroy Hamas, you know, that they, they have a, an obligation to go and destroy Hamas. I mean, I'm saying you're being too optimistic <laughs> in, in suggesting that there's any form of restraint coming from the United States. It's true. I mean, it, we're, we're, this is the scenario that we're in. I mean, also these Marines that are floating off uh, the coast of Lebanon, remember, were chased out of Lebanon. The Marines were based in Lebanon in the early 1980s and Hezbollah, before they were Hezbollah, um, blew up their barracks and drove them out of Lebanon. So there's a debt from the, uh, from the Marines as well. Um, yeah, I mean, if that's what we're talking about, we're talking about uh, essentially... Um, what would amount to um, open war in a civilian population um, that is, um, you know, already starved of essentials. Um, and then you have a front in the north that we haven't even talked about today that is opening up in a way that, um, you know, looks like if, if what was happening in Gaza wasn't happening, we would be talking today about the war in Lebanon. They would call it a war. The number of soldiers killed, um, the number of fighters killed, um, the number of attacks um, on the Lebanon border 
you know, where the Americans uh, are focusing their attention. I mean, I don't think that the Americans are floating aircraft carriers off the coast for Qassam. I'll do respect to Qassam. They're floating them there for Hezbollah. Um, they better have a good war plan or they're going to lose the war. I, I don't see any yeah. other way. I mean, we're talking about speculating. We're speculating and, and, and that's difficult right, right away. Um, th th there's no war plan. If there was a war plan, the economist would know it. I mean, it's essentially a foreign service uh, dispatch, right? Yeah. Th they would know. There's mm. not even a hint of that. They're talking about Dahlan. I mean, this is one audience that we can talk about Dahlan with where it would, re it would resonate. But we're talking about bringing back uh, defeated ghosts of the past here. There's not any kind of post-Hamas world. Um, I mean, it's difficult. It's, I, I think we will be, I mean, it seems like we're going to be live on the air to, to, to follow this um, as it happens. Sitting here right now, I, I don't see how the Israelis aren't just articulating their defeat. Um, because even if they were 10 times the army that they are, I, I still think it's virtually an impossible task. And, and I'm not alone. I mean, uh, the, the, there's uh, there's nobody that's saying that there's a good war plan. I mean, you're not hearing a realistic war plan for fighting in Gaza. You're hearing people say, um, you know, you're hearing soldiers say, sure wouldn't want to be me. You know, yeah. the yeah. Americans set up these institutes after they got defeated in urban warfare during the war on terror, they set up these entire institutes where people spend all their time just studying urban warfare. Um, and there's no, there's, there's nothing like a solution for 500 miles of tunnels um, that are armed where the armaments are in the tunnels. Um, even just the mass casualty possibility, these tunnels can be, they have explosives in them. If the Israelis want to move uh, concentrations of troops into open areas in the Gaza Strip. They're just tempting um, massive tunnel explosions, which is what they pulled out of Gaza in the first place for, because of massive tunnel explosions underneath their troop concentrations on the Rafa border, what's called the Philadelphia Corridor, which they used to patrol up and down the Philadelphia Corridor in tanks um, until the Palestinians were able to take um, unexploded ordnance, remove Israeli bombs, remove the explosives from the Israeli bombs and reconstitute them, put them underneath in a tunnel underneath their soldiers on the on the Philadelphia corridor on the Rafa border and blow them up. And there was footage, people old enough to remember, of Israelis crawling on their hands and knees on the Philadelphia corridor looking for the body parts of their uh, comrades that were blown up by tunnel networks that were underneath the troop positions that they had. And the Israelis just said, we're not, we're not doing it. It's not Ariel Sharon, the bulldozer just said, we had a dream, but look guys, it's, we can't do it. It can't be done. And that was when they already had military control inside the Gaza Strip. They mm -hmm. already had all that. Now you're talking about moving it from the outside of the border in yeah. when Palestinians are prepared. What entry is Israel going to make into the Gaza Strip from the east, from the south, 
I mean, the the places where they would have to move in from are the most famous areas in the Palestinian territories for resistance. Shujaia is a nightmare for the Israelis. And you're not cutting the Gaza Strip from the east without moving completely through Shujaia. And they couldn't even get through one street. And it was a brutal massacre that we'll all remember from the 2014 war when they just shelled civilians all day long because their troops got smoked. And when the Israelis get smoked, what they do is they immediately withdraw and carry out civilian massacres. That's what they do. In Janine in 2002, they didn't say, let's go in and bulldoze the center of the camp. They said, we're going to go in and defeat the, the resistance. And they moved in, they got smoked, and they lost their minds and bulldozed the center of the refugee camp on top of people, on top of their own people, um, on top of their own soldiers. They, they didn't care. They just lost their minds. That's what happened in Shujaia. When the, the ground invasion in 2014 began, the first place the Israelis encountered physical resistance there, you know, the Jerusalem Post blew up with stories talking about soldiers talking about like, holy smokes, they came from behind us. They came from on top of us. We looked around. We were we thought, you know, the Israelis, they take buildings. That's what they do in the West Bank. They'll move in. They'll take a building, push the family into the kitchen or whatever, and then use it as a sniper post. But when they do that in Gaza or when they did it in South Lebanon, there's a tunnel underneath the building and people are coming up and fighting inside the building that the Israelis are in. So while you're trying to move your troops into this, you know, split the territory, they're being constantly attacked from all sides by tens of thousands of fighters who have been prepared for this fight. Um, it's not clear to me that that's possible, but what is possible is to do what they did in Shujaia in 2014, to admit their cowardice, to pull back, and to massacre civilians until um, you know they can create a situation where people are so desperate um, that they super, sue for peace, which we know the Palestinians aren't going to do. We know that. We know I they're just, not going to do that. I just want to share, th thank you, John, I just want to share one piece of breaking news is that uh, apparently Hamas has released two American uh, captives that were in Gaza or two Americans who were held in Gaza um, and it has released them to the Red Cross for humanitarian reasons. So let's, that, that will be interesting to watch. I don't know if that was their own initiative or if that indicates some kind of behind the scenes negotiations going on? Yeah, I mean, I, the fact that Abu Ubaidah said just so straight up that the the foreigners and non-involved people would be released unconditionally. And Osama Hamdan, who was the person who with um, the Israeli um, person uh, organized the Shalit exchange and worked behind the scenes and Hamdan said, um, that Abu Obeda was very clear that they were giving the civilians and non-aligned people back, um, which makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. When the field conditions would allow, in other when words, the field conditions would allow yeah. it, 
because you can't move. You can't ask people to bring aid in right now under bombardment. You can't ask the Red Cross to, to shuttle prisoners back to the border. But I'm sure if there was, uh, it, it seems, I mean, Abu Obeda said it straightforwardly. Um, he gives short um, radio, uh, f- short audio addresses, uh, video addresses that are very to the point. He's not giving long, elaborate speeches where he might say something. He's very pointedly said that those people, that the non-aligned in civilians, he called them our guests, and that the only reason that they had them was because other people brought them to the Qassam Brigades during October 7th. And and Abu Ubaidah said, we didn't have time to verify the provenance of the identities of these people in that moment um, when the Southern Command had collapsed. Um, There's no need to to hold the civilians. And and it makes sense that Qassam would say that. They have military commanders. They've got enough prisoners to free all Palestinian prisoners. And that's what Abu Ubaidah said too. He said for anyone negotiating internationally that he wants everyone to know that the prisoner exchange that will happen will touch every Palestinian family in the West Bank and Gaza Strip because political prisoners in Palestine are something that impacts every family. And so he just pointedly said that and then signed off by saying to the prisoners, you know, your time is your time is coming uh, to the Palestinian prisoners, as in yeah. like we're going to free you with with our um, military action that led to the collapse of Israel's southern command. I think when we talk Israeli war plans, I think we should keep that part in mind that the southern command was collapsed. Yeah, um, that that those architects, that those intelligence officers, that those uh, they're gone. They had to be replaced because they're in captivity, held underground. Um, yeah, high level. High I'm level, yeah. higher yeah. than have ever yeah. been captured. Yeah. In prisoner exchanges that low level people right. get 1,000 right. prisoners freed for. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Before we do, we want to read uh, some comments from our listeners that have been pouring in during this live stream. Uh, Asa, take it away. Yeah, as usual, lots of support for all our guests. Thank you, Dr. Tarek, um, who was on earlier in the show. Um, Ahmed Abu Fool, very brave. Your work is essential to showing the way to truth and justice. And of course, lots of support for EI and the live streams. People have been saying thank you for doing the live streams. Um, and thank you for all the great work you're doing. Wonderful. And uh, of course, we want to thank all of our guests, uh, John Elmer, our in-house uh, analyst and expert, and also my co-host over at The Brief Podcast. Uh, we heard from Dr. Tarek Lubani. Uh, he's an emergency room physician and co-founder of the GLIA Project. And of course, uh, Ahmed Abu Fool, he's uh, with the Al-Haq Palestinian Human Rights Group doing extraordinary work under such uh, unbearable conditions. Um, We want to encourage you to go to our website, electronicintifada.net, sign up for our mailing list. You'll uh, get alerts from uh, for when we do these live streams. Um, We are going to continue to do them. So please stay tuned 
next week. Uh, and of course, for all breaking news analysis and on the ground coverage, go to electronicintifada.net or uh, follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Thank you, John. Thank you, Asa. Thank you, Ali. Thank you to Tamara Nassar behind the scenes as always. Um, and uh, we will be back next week. Please stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank everyone. you. Thank you.